Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Steve Gregg, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. It's early, it's early in the morning for me, but it's not. Yeah, yeah, you're over on the uh, the West Coast, right? That's right. Yeah, so you're three hours behind. So I'm recording this at like nine something in the morning and, and the sun is barely even breaking the horizon where you're at. That's correct. It just came up. Awesome. Beautiful. Well, I, uh, my listeners are probably not going to have a clue who you are, but this was, this, uh, is going to be quite an interesting interview. I am sitting down today with, uh, Steve Gregg. Uh, Steve, uh, came, uh, by way of interview due to a listener of the podcast, uh, who recommended that I sit down with you and you and I talk about some issues. Uh, Steve, I wonder if you might just briefly introduce yourself and, uh, and give us a brief bio of who you are so that my listeners can get a feel for your uh, background and what you do. Well, it's kind of hard for anyone to get much of a feel for who I am because I'm kind of unconventional. I'm I'm in full-time ministry, though I have no formal education, and I don't take any salary for it, so I'm not really professional. But uh, I, uh, I I was raised Christian. I was raised uh, in in uh, one of the many Baptist denominations, and uh, I'm 61 years old. So when I was 16, it was 1970. My family moved within the vicinity of a church. That was uh, sort of the hub of what was called the Jesus Movement at the time. That church was Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. Now, Calvary Chapel has become a big denomination now, but it was only one church back then. And a lot of people were uh, coming there uh, to find Christ and to, and to study the Bible uh, day every day, really. Uh, they had meetings every single day, Bible studies. And I started attending those when I was 16. And I got a, oh, I don't know, a... A personal revival in my life, I suppose. I had already been a believer in Christ since my youth, and I'd even read the Bible uh, probably more than most people my age had because I had a real interest in that. But from the time I was 16 on, I really just had a desire to just walk with Jesus in the in the way the disciples did. You know, I, I actually had, growing up, I'd read the Gospels, and I'd read the book of Acts, and, and the story of Jesus and the disciples. It really, you know, it seemed like ancient history to me. But somehow coming into this revival and around all these people who were uh, who were talking about Jesus like like he was a real real companion and and me myself discovering him in that way it transformed the way I read the Bible when I read about Jesus it was like I was one of the people in the crowd listening to him it was uh, and when I read about Paul and Peter in the book of Acts I it was sort of like I don't know it just seemed like a milieu that I was that I had stepped into uh, where where Christ was real, not just an object of my faith, somebody I really knew other than by hearsay, and who I was walking with and living with. His uh, the reality of God came to be much more, um, I guess, sensate. I might say I I hate to use words that would suggest feelings because I'm not really that much of a feelings oriented kind of a guy. I'm, uh, I've always had a problem being a little too cerebral and not so much. Uh, emotional, as I should probably be more, but uh, but nonetheless, though it was not, uh, I wasn't getting goosebumps or anything like that. But I had more just an inward awareness of the reality of God. I know that the Mormons speak about having a burning in the bosom, and I suppose 
I might have had something that resembled that, uh, although I, nobody knows what's going on in someone else's bosom exactly, but, but uh, it was certainly something sensed uh, the reality of God in my life. And uh, ever since that time, which has been 44 years now, um, I've been walking with Christ. And, and when I got out of high school, I had the opportunity to go to, go to Bible college. I had a, my grandmother wanted to pay my way through Bible college. And I decided instead just to live much more of a primitive uh uh, Christian life, sort of like like I felt the disciples did. And one of the things I determined was that, like Jesus and the disciples, I would not charge for the ministry. I would not take a salary from anyone. I'd just trust God uh, to provide for me in all things, and I would just do what, what came before me to do. And so I've kind of lived a really unconventional life. Uh, I don't say I'm. I don't say it's a better life than what someone else has lived. It's just unconventional. I don't meet very many people in Christian ministry who, you know, are full-time in the ministry, as I've been, and yet it's it's not a job in any sense. I've never worked for a Christian organization. Um, I've never been on staff. At, well, I've been a, a leader at church, but I've never been paid or anything like that in a church. So I, I've done a lot of different things. What I do mostly these days is travel and teach for Christian groups that invite me, and also I have a radio broadcast uh, every day. In fact, I have two pro two radio programs every day. I uh, have a morning show and an afternoon show, which are on quite a few radio stations now, uh, mostly on the West Coast, although we're on a, a station in Virginia and, and we're on in Kansas City. But most of the stations are here on the West Coast where I live, from Seattle down to really down to Phoenix. And the radio show is an open line for people to call in and ask any questions they have about the Bible or about the Christian faith. Uh, needless to say, although I didn't get formally trained, I've spent my entire 45 years with my nose in the Bible and in books about the Bible. I've studied uh, a great deal of, of theology, and uh, and I've I've probably learned more about the Bible in in the way that I've studied it because it's been incessant uh, than maybe I would have learned going through 10 years of you know uh, upper level education. I've I've really had uh, I, I the Bible is has been my food, my my meat and my drink for uh, since 1970 anyway. And so I don't have any um, denominational affiliation. I don't have any uh, concerns to make people uh, agree with me on disputed theological issues. Uh, my desire is just to be of use to people. And if they ask me questions, I'll give them the best answer I know how. Now, of course, lots of people's questions are about controversial subjects. And my effort is to simply present the various sides of a controversy, uh, why different people hold the different views, and then to share what my view is and, and why I prefer it or why I believe it's true. So that's sort of my modus operandi when I'm on the radio or when I'm dealing with people. And that's what I've just been kind of living outside the mainstream of evangelical Christianity, although my, my theology is evangelical. Uh, it doesn't really line up with any particular denominations theology in total. I really love, you know, you talk about your approach and the idea of giving people kind of alternative viewpoints and then simply stating, well, this is where I stand. And I find that to be quite helpful. I think often in religion, we're, we're told things are a certain way. And then all of a sudden we wake up one day and we can't make that fit. And we feel like we have to throw out the baby with the bathwater and simply giving people multiple viewpoints and allowing them to choose kind of their own belief if it hasn't been spelled out absolutely, I think gives people a lot of freedom and a lot of strength to hang on. And I assume you find the same? Uh, absolutely. I, I believe that I'm called to be an educator. I, I believe Jesus was primarily a teacher. I mean, I don't know if I should say primarily because he was the son of God, which is far more important than being a teacher. But in terms of his activities, I think his primary activity when he was walking on the earth was teaching. And he told his disciples to teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, uh, teaching them to observe whatever he said. So I believe as a teacher, I'm not supposed to be an indoctrinator, but an educator. And I don't have, unlike some people in ministry, I don't have anything to gain by someone agreeing with me on a controverted point. I don't have my ego wrapped up in it. I'm just interested in what's true. And I've changed my views many, many times uh, as I've studied out things that I had not previously studied out and I don't mind changing my views. See, if I was locked into a denomination, that I wouldn't have that liberty, you know. And I would, if I were a pastor of a church of a certain denomination, there would be some, I'd have some vested interest in people agreeing with the views of my group. But since I don't lead an organization, I don't lead a group, uh, 
I'm just interested in what's true, and therefore I'm willing to look at all sides. And I'm, I think that uh, a teacher does a service to his listeners to let them know as much as they can about all sides of an issue and respect them enough to give them the ability to think about it. I think maybe my philosophy of teaching in that area was developed by the fact that my early teaching that I sat under when I was young was not that way. Uh, I was taught a certain view in particular about the end times, popular view, and uh, I taught it myself because I just learned how to regurgitate what I was told. But over the years, as I studied the Bible itself, I found that the view I was taught really didn't match up with the scripture that well. And then I discovered through my own research that there were quite a few other views besides the one I had been raised with. And I, I have to say, I kind of resented my teachers for not letting me know. And I thought, well, I'm not going to give my listeners or my students any uh, occasion to resent me on those on that basis. I'm going to let them know the different views and let them think for themselves. I, I actually think that sometimes religion treats people like children when people are looking for a grown-up relationship with God. And grown-up means responsible. You have to make your own decisions about things, including what you're going to believe about things that are disputed. Yeah, the the last segment of things that you just talked about is going to strike very much at home with my listeners. In fact, you talked about your views constantly changing, and I was reading your biography, the little, uh, I think it's like a 16-page paper that is part of... Uh, part of your website, which by the way, just quickly, if you would mind, wouldn't mind sharing, what's the, what's the website that you've got and where can people find that? Well, the website is uh, thenarrowpath.com. So thenarrowpath.com. And that's also the name of the radio show, The Narrow Path. Um, and uh, the program can be heard actually from the website. It streams there and it's archived there, but there's also lots of other resources there. Wonderful. Hopefully the listeners will check that out. In the uh, in the biography that I was reading about you, you said this. You said, some would no doubt conclude on the basis of all these confessed changes in my theology that I am theologically unstable, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Actually, since the mid-70s, there has been no to and fro-ness about it. I have not gone back and forth in my beliefs. Rather, it has been a linear development. Each change I have made has been precipitated by the previous ones and has been necessary, a necessary advance encouraged by those that preceded them. Personally, of course, I regard the sum of these shifts as growth and progress. I do not expect all who read this to agree with me in this assessment. I'll tell you this. I agree, uh, and, and I think my listeners will agree, and I'll tell you what we run into in Mormonism, and maybe, maybe you can speak about this in the, in the sense of the people that you talk to and the people that you help and, and answer questions for. But in Mormonism, we just as you pointed out in that church you went to early on, we're often taught in our local congregations a very, I don't know, just a really simple way of understanding the gospel or understanding uh, our faith. And all of a sudden you wake up one day and you just realize that all of those things don't quite fit, that often there's been some leader off in some corner of the church who who would tell you that you can't believe in this idea or you can't believe in that idea or you have to believe such and such. And and members will come across this and all of a sudden it'll throw their faith kind of into a struggle. And what I found is helpful is that what I've done is I've gone back and taken those issues, taken them apart, look at what the scriptures say, look at what the commentary is within my faith. And often, almost to a T, every time I find multiple viewpoints and so then I'm left with a choice. The first choice, if I don't know those viewpoints, is to force this, the, uh, the new information, the facts, as we'll call them, to change so that my paradigm can stay the same. But what you, what you speak to and what I've done as well is that once you realize that things are a little more nuanced or complex, I guess, than, than we initially see them, we can allow our paradigm to change to fit the new truth or the new facts. And, and that sounds like exactly what you've done over the course of your life. Well, right. I, yeah, I feel like, you know, Jesus said the truth will make you free. And that means the more of the truth I become aware of, I believe the more free I will be because nobody has all the truth. Uh, we're all learning. And to tell you the truth, uh, I was raised, of course, in the Baptist uh, tradition, believing that we had the purest of all beliefs on all points of the Bible. And uh, I was glad to get off the reservation far enough to, to hear other viewpoints and realize that, well, you know, some of these things actually make more sense biblically than, than what I was taught. And uh, I feel that I've, because I've been open to it, I have discovered more truth, and it has been very freeing for me. Uh, and I'm not afraid to be free. I'm not. A, some people don't want to get that free. They want somebody else to do all their thinking for them. Right. 
And uh, I like being free, and I like to be able to think freely. The Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. And so I think that where there's where people are bound and required to believe uh, too many things that are actually controvertible, but the, the system they're in requires them to believe a certain way about them. I don't think there's much evidence that the Spirit of God is there. Um, I want to ask you this. Have you, you know, I read your biography, and I didn't quite pick this up in your story, but you said there were a lot of things that you didn't include in this. Uh, had you ever had a, a faith crisis yourself? And, and I guess how did you handle that, and, and how did you work yourself through that, if you did? I, I don't know if anything in my life would, have, would really qualify as a faith crisis. I've had crises that really made me examine my faith, but nothing really shook it very far. Uh, I would say that before the experience I mentioned when I was 16, uh, growing up, I, I was a firm believer uh, in a, a fundamentalist type view of the Bible. And, uh, and I've never really had a, a, a problem with my faith, but I have had to come to some different understanding of what it means to say the Bible is the word of God, because there are things in it that that didn't match up with my understanding of inerrancy uh, at the time. And uh, and yet, the what I believe is that my views on inerrancy were themselves unbiblical. Uh, you know, I think Bart Ehrman is an example of somebody who didn't make the transition very well from being a fundamentalist to being informed. Uh, you know, because fundamentalists believe that the Bible was inspired, and sometimes they, they picture it in their mind as almost a automatic writing kind of a situation where a prophet or an apostle uh, puts his pen on in the ink and, and lays it on the parchment, and suddenly something takes over his mind, and he, he's no longer himself briefly while he writes his letter or while he writes his book, and suddenly, you know, uh, he can't make any mistakes because he is now writing the Bible. And I think Bart Ehrman was raised with that view, and, and so was I. The difference was that when he found out that that's not the way it worked and that the Bible's even the evidence within the Bible itself doesn't encourage us to believe that particular view. I think he just threw the baby out with the bathwater and just said the Bible's not true. I figured, well, maybe my teaching that I was under wasn't true. Let me see what the Bible says about itself. And when I looked for that, I found that the Bible doesn't really claim the things about itself in some cases that I was suggesting. I mean, for example, this, this thing really stood out to me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, that you would not say that I baptized in my name. And then two verses later, he says, oh, yeah, that's right. I did. I remember now, I did baptize the household of Stephanus also. And if I baptized any others, I don't remember. That's what he says. And, you know, I think, okay, so he made a mistake, and he admits his mistake and corrects it and says, and I don't remember if this is even a comprehensive list. Uh, that is to say, Paul doesn't talk like somebody who's the direct mouthpiece of a channeled oracle. You know, he's he's a man who's obviously writing from his memory, writing from what he knows. But I have no trouble accepting the authority of what he writes, because, frankly, he was a man who had a lot closer walk with God than I do. And he was selected by God to speak for God. So I've got no problem letting him tell me what's true. But but I do have a problem now in trying to impose on his writings something he doesn't say about them. For example, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord. I'll just give my judgment about this. Oh, back when I was younger, I used to think, well, Paul can't be, Paul can't be just giving his judgment. He, 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 this is in the Bible. He must be giving a word from the Lord. He must not know that he is. You know, he says he's not, doesn't have anything from the Lord. He must, he must be mistaken about that, which is kind of a weird thing to argue. Because it's arguing that I know something about Paul's writings that he doesn't know. Right. Uh, but in fact, he doesn't claim to be writing under inspiration, but he does claim to be an apostle of Christ. And an apostle of Christ speaks with the authority of Christ. It doesn't mean he speaks infallibly like a prophet. But I, I just had to alter my views about certain things. Now, I believe when someone like Bart Ehrman discovered that his original view of inspiration or inerrancy of the Bible was not uh, well thought out, and not in touch with reality. I think he just kind of chucked the whole belief in the Bible altogether, to tell you the truth. And I don't think that's absolutely necessary. I don't think that's necessary at all. Uh, I think I can adjust. I can realize that what I was taught was a tradition of my religious group. And it, frankly, it's sort of a tradition of American evangelicalism. But the Bible doesn't say I have to follow American evangelicalism. The Bible simply tells me that it's telling the truth. And I believe that it is. So I do use the Bible for all my beliefs. 
uh, I consider the Bible to be authoritative in all matters of faith and practice, but I don't hold this kind of magical view of inspiration that I think I was raised with. And learning that kind of thing didn't, didn't really put me in a crisis. But I guess, I guess because I really do love the truth, anything I learn that's true, even if it upsets the apple cart, is kind of thrilling for me. Not because I, I you know, uh, am, am addicted to novelty, by no means. I'm actually fairly conservative. It takes me a long time to change my mind about something. But once I find that there's reason to change my mind, it's kind of an intriguing. It's kind of a, it's kind of an exploration that, like a treasure hunt. And so I, I've never, I've never thought that I have anything to be threatened by from the truth. Although the truth may lead me into things away from my tradition in some cases. Right. No, I agree with that. And I thought that was beautiful as well. And again, uh, I think a lot of things you're saying would, would very easily be said by those who, who listen to this podcast. And, and because it's that same idea that as you learn new things, you welcome it in. And as you put it, uh, it is thrilling. It is fun. Uh, I enjoy taking different things apart and going back into the scriptures and digging and going into my church's history and, and things that uh, leaders have said and just kind of picking at those and and trying to find uh, both differences of opinion as well as when people line up and and just as you're pointing to the Bible being this uh this book that certainly God has delegated authority to those men to carry on his work and to report on it that he's not directing every single word as if he's whispering into their ear and and I think lots of you know Latter-day Saints have to deal with that same kind of issue we we sometimes see the scriptures as perfect or we see our leaders as perfect. And yet there has to be some room to realize that we each come into this world with our own personalities and experiences. And and without God whispering in our ear every word to say and every action to take, we're going to do both good things and bad things and, and you know, try to find our own way along the path as well. I, uh, I wonder, you talked about Bart Ehrman in the historical Jesus, uh, you know, scholarship that he writes books on and, and, tries to certainly push his point across. What do you make of the the scholarship around the historical Jesus? What are your thoughts on all that as you've looked it through and, and looked it over? Well, I've, uh, you know, I've heard Bart Ehrman speak, and uh, I frankly have not bought his books, but I've heard him speak about his main theses, uh, about, uh, you know, the problems he's found from textual criticism and so forth of the Bible. But what surprises me about him is that, it wasn't until he was at a very advanced point in his education that he decided that his evangelical faith was not not correct. And what he decided was that the Bible isn't inspired in the way that he had thought because he found about differences in the manuscripts and things like that. And the reason it surprised me is because he went through two evangelical colleges before he before he came to realize what I don't know what I had no trouble learning when I was in my teens. Uh, what any Christian can find out from studying these things on his own, that the, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, all the manuscripts lined up uh, in complete agreement with each other. That's, that's not a secret. It's never been a secret. But apparently that really blew him out of the water in a way. And he, so he just said, well, the Bible can't be trusted because it can't be viewed the way that he had been raised to see it. Uh, and so he now takes an extremely skeptical approach, I believe, to the to the uh, reliability of the Gospels, for example. And well, I mean, liberals have been doing that for over a century now. That you know, ch- challenging everything that's in the Bible as you know, probably probably not true until proven true, uh, guilty until proven innocent, kind of thing. And I I just don't respect that approach, to tell you the truth. I I there are plenty of conservative. Bible scholars who don't agree with his assessment of things. And I've read what they have to say, too. As far as I'm concerned, there's no excellent reason. I don't even think there's a good reason to think that the Gospels portray Jesus uh, substantially differently than he really was. I think that they record true events, the true words of Christ, uh, that he claimed all that he that the Bible says he claimed. And uh, we have to deal with that, those claims and either believe them or reject them. But I think Liberal scholarship, and that's what uh, Bart Ehrman would have to belong to that category, basically is, you know, they their first approach to anything biblical is seems to be skepticism and, you know, let it prove itself before we can believe it. Well, we don't do that with other ancient records. We don't do that with other historical records from the past. We might say, I will withhold judgment about some things that they say until I know whether they're true or not. But we don't just wholesale come with uh, skepticism to every ancient historical record 
the way that liberal scholarship often does toward the Bible. And I, you know, I don't have a default skepticism. Now, I do think that Christians, I think religious people, I think all people need to be more skeptical than they are about the claims that are made that can't be substantiated about religious things. I think that when people listen to Richard Dawkins say there's no God, I think people need to be more skeptical and say, well, how do you know that, that this is true? I mean, how do the things that you're saying prove your point? Uh, I, I think if people were more skeptical, a lot of these popular writers against God would have a smaller audience because these guys don't back up what they say with anything that really proves their point. And the same is true of many religious people, many evangelicals. Uh, lots of their theology, a lot of their claims about the Bible, I think can't be shown to be true. But having said that, I believe that the biblical authors, uh, they're very unpretentious. And they just say, this is what happened. And some of them say, I saw it with my own eyes, you know. And I think, okay, I'm not in the habit of calling people liars uh, unless I find them to be dishonest people. And the people who wrote the Gospels, or we might just say the people who tell us who wrote the Gospels, like the, the church fathers who tell us that Matthew wrote the first Gospel and that Mark was Peter's uh, translator and that, you know, uh, you know John was uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved and so forth. Those early uh, early church fathers who give us that background, I don't think they have any reason to lie to us. I don't, I'm, frankly, and I don't, I don't come to their words with uh, default skepticism. I'm willing to be skeptical if I catch them saying something irresponsible or probably not true. But unless I have reason to believe that they'd be motivated to lie, I don't attribute bad motives to them any more than I do to anyone else who I talk to or read. And I, right. I think liberal scholarship treats the Bible like they treat no other book with more skepticism than they would apply to almost anything else in ancient records. Yeah, you know, you look at the New Testament, I think it's Paul who is essentially testifying of all those who saw the resurrected Christ. And and I think at one point he says there's, a you know, several hundred of you that, you know, saw him. When you start making claims about things like that, while the people who were part of that experience are still alive, I mean, that puts a lot more weight on what they're saying. And kind of what you're pointing to, um, having read a lot of Bart Ehrman and others who kind of take that same approach, and recently on the podcast, it'll be coming out here soon, I have an interview with a LDS scholar, David Bakavoy, and we talk about the historical Jesus and the scholarship that's out there. And then I've also listened to N.T. Wright and uh, and some of his uh, audio programming on the historical Jesus. And what I find is uh, there's a lot of Christians out there who read people like Bart Ehrman, and all of a sudden it throws their faith for a loop, and they begin to, to doubt whether the things that they've based their faith on are true. But it would help so much if they would just take a step back and look at various viewpoints and realize that you know there are also faithful scholars out there who have looked at the exact same information and draw absolutely completely different conclusions and that one ought to not just see Bart Ehrman as kind of uh, you know pulling the wool off of our eyes but rather that it's one perspective it's one conclusion and there's a whole cart full of those uh, different directions that each of us can go in and how we take that same information well that's precisely correct i mean there's there are many conservative uh, Bible-believing scholars that have been dealing with the same points, the same information that Bart Ehrman raises, but don't see any reason to reach his conclusions from them. And to my mind, uh, I don't either. Now, like I said, I'm I'm basically conservative. I change my views sometimes very radically, but not very quickly. Uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm resistant to change. So, uh, you know, my tendency being conservative, I'm likely to stick with a conservative view of the evidence. That is a conservative interpretation of the evidence, unless there's some compelling reason to go another way. But as I see it, the things we believe about the Bible are based on what the earliest church fathers tell us about it. And I, I feel like, well, those church fathers, they had motive, they didn't have any motivation to fool themselves and others as to who wrote the scriptures. And if they did, I mean, some people think, well, <clears throat> you know, they wanted to uh, claim that the scriptures were written by the apostles and so forth just because it would give them credibility. Well, if, if the four Gospels were not written by the four traditional authors, why did anyone come up with the idea that Mark or Luke wrote any of them? These are very obscure and fairly unimportant characters. Right. Certainly Matthew and John are important characters. And we might say, well, if, if those books weren't really written by Matthew and John, someone might still wish to believe they were. But if Mark and Luke didn't write those two Gospels that bear their names, why would anyone suggest that they did? There, there was no prestige associated with them. Luke's not even mentioned. 
uh, in the Bible, except as one of the people in one of the lists of people that was with Paul when he was in prison in Rome. And, uh, and, and it's a long list, and his name is obscure. Mark is very obscure also, although he's mentioned a couple times. Uh, if, if you're going to lie about who wrote these documents, you would definitely pick the kinds of names that, say, the Gnostic Gospels claim, the Gospel of Peter, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Philip. You know, they, they pick apostolic people to claim to be, although they're lying. The Gnostic Gospels obviously are lying because those people weren't alive when those were written. But the, the Gospels we have in the Bible, none of them actually claim anything for themselves, except that they're true. They don't claim any authorship. It's the church fathers that remember, because they lived near the time that those Gospels came out. They remember who wrote them, and th- they seem to be honest in their attribution of authorship, since they, like I said, they didn't say that Mark's Gospel was written by um, James, the brother of John, or something. Because Mark, you know, if you're going to find some fictional author, you're not going to pick Mark or Luke because they just don't confer any prestige to the book. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The uh, the next question I want to ask you is just religion in general. I mean, do you feel like it's the job of religion to answer all the questions, or do you feel like you know religion and, and our faith is designed to simply push us outside our comfort zone, or, or maybe is it designed to do both? I believe that our faith is supposed to bring us into actual contact and communion with God. Now, in terms of answering questions, I believe that if we have authoritative documents from the prophets and apostles, then, you know, obviously a lot of answers are going to be answered. A lot of questions are going to be answered authoritatively that way. But I think we have much more curiosity uh, than we need to. We're curious about things that we don't need to know. Some people ask me on my radio show, what's the most common question that I get asked? Uh, I've been on the show doing the daily for 17 years, and I get asked several questions, you know, every hour. Uh, on on the show, and it, it surprised me. The pe- the questions people ask the most are things that you really don't need to know. You know, who were the sons of God who married the daughters of men and the Nephilim that came from them in Genesis six? Well, I mean, there's different theories. I can outline them for you, but does it really matter? I mean, how does that affect your life? How does that affect your relationship with God? It would seem more reasonable for us to look for answers to the questions that tell us who God is, what He's like, and what He wants. From us, and you know what I might, what might be expected of me from Him. I mean, these are the kinds of questions I would need to have answered if I want to be in a relationship with God. And the Bible does answer those questions. It doesn't answer questions about whether there's life on other planets. Uh, it doesn't even give exact answers about things like you know the age of the Earth and things like that. Uh, so I mean, these are questions people have. But if we knew the answers, would it make a difference? It would only make a difference in our curiosity. It wouldn't make a difference in what matters. And what matters to God is that we know him and walk with him and that he has revealed himself accurately in the scriptures. And I believe that, you know, the answer, the answers to questions about God that are essential for us to know are all there. Now, does it move us out of our comfort zone? Well, it sh- I think it should because none of us are very comfortable with holiness. I think holiness is unnatural for us. I think it's supernatural and where, like I mentioned myself, being more fairly conservative, and I don't change easily. Every time I've had to change my views in any radical way, it's been uncomfortable for me. And I, and yet I do it. You know, I, I, because I want, I want the truth, but I want to, I want to know God. And you know, I think when you talk about a crisis of faith, a crisis of faith when someone actually has it really helps you to understand whether you know God or just know about God. If you know God personally then people can shake up your views about the Bible or about a lot of other things, but they're not going to raise serious questions in your mind as to whether Jesus is real or God is real, because you know him. Uh, and I've been interviewed on atheist podcasts, uh, you know, the, the infidel guy and some of those ones. Uh, and, and I've told them, well, you know, I have very good rational reasons for my beliefs. But if all those rational reasons suddenly just dissolved, I have other reasons. I have an experience with God. In fact, in all my conversations with Mormons, that's what they end up testifying to also. You know, I mean, uh, you know, if if they say, well, whatever else may be said about our faith, we have this witness. We have this testimony. And and that would be, that's kind of unshakable. You know, if you have this testimony, you know that God is real in your life. Then you can, you know, your, your faith in certain propositions can be shaken. But it's really hard to shake your faith in in God himself. I, I've, I, I actually have told people, and I believe this is true, that it would be as difficult for me to doubt God's existence, having lived with him this long, 
as it would for me to doubt my parents' existence. And, and that may seem like a hyperbole, but it's, I think it's quite literally true. No, I find that beautiful. And, and I too, as you're saying that, I can look back on experiences in my life that while I may doubt lots of things, um, I've had answered prayers. I've had things happen that are beyond just, you know, oh, I feel good or oh, that was a strange coincidence. Um, and so those kinds of things, hopefully to each of us, hopefully each of us have had those and we can rely on those as a strength. I like too your thought that we shouldn't be spending time on the periphery of of religion, but rather get to the heart of the matter, which is to know God, to know Christ, and to uh, to essentially find what they are asking of us, and to submit our will to them, and and not be so concerned, as you point out, you know, the age of the earth, or whether there's you know beings on other planets, as you point out, that that really doesn't matter. It has no effect on our salvation. And uh, and I wanted to ask you, I've got two other questions I want to talk to you about, and then I want to talk for just a moment about your books. Um, in regards to your faith, what what are your favorite parts of your faith, or what are the things you find most exciting as you as you delve into uh, your beliefs and into your faith itself? Well, my my relationship with God has transformed my experience of of many things, but probably the most significant is my experience of suffering. Uh, I think suffering is the is the most universal and most perplexing aspect of of human experience. And it's that which challenges people's faith the most. I mean, if there's a good God, why does life hurt so much is really the, the question that everyone's asking, especially when they're suffering. I've been through some suffering myself. I've, uh, I don't, won't go into it in detail, but I've had some, I've had some significant losses that were very, uh, really knocked the wind out of my sails. I, you know, almost took away my, my desire to even live, although I've never, never been suicidal or anything like that, but I, as I've often lost, I mean, a number of times, Things were so bad that I just I didn't have any will to to go on, and and yet because of my knowledge of God and my relationship with God, I realized that these things, you know, as inexplicable as they may be at the present moment, are not something that come randomly. They come from the hand of a Father who cares about me, and God is in control of things in my life. I don't say that God makes everything happen. But he certainly has the power to prevent them from happening, at least from happening to me. You know, some people say, well, God can't stop you from suffering because other people have free will. Yeah, they do have free will, but it doesn't cancel out God's free will. I mean, if somebody wants to, um, if, if a drunk driver is veering toward my car on the freeway, God has every power to veer him the other way. Uh, if, if something comes into my experience, it is my conviction that God has allowed it to come into my experience. Uh, my I, I once, uh, among the things I've alluded to, I had a wife who was killed in an accident some years ago. And uh, many people just asked me, oh, are you mad at God for that? Or did that hurt your faith in God? I thought, why exactly would that make me mad at God? Um, I feel like God has the right to, he brings us into the world, he has the right to take us out. If God exercises his rights, uh, you know, I'm submitted to him. He's not submitted to me. I, my relationship with him is not, God, you, you give me all the right answers and I'll follow you. Uh, my submission to God is, is frankly, unconditional. So it was a great disappointment, a great pain in my life when my wife was killed, but it never occurred to me that it was somehow unfair or somehow God didn't have the right to do that kind of thing. But when you, my faith in God is that he is really the owner. He's the owner of the world. He's the owner of me. And uh, he can do whatever he wants with it. But I know this, that he won't do anything that is in conflict with his love for me. And that as painful as some... Uh, experiences are they uh, they I, I have every confidence that they work together for good like Paul said they do and so I mean that that's probably the thing I enjoy most about my faith is that life my life like everybody's life has had its trials and sufferings some of them very severe but but actually you know it's transformed my experience of living to have God as the center of my concern and the center of my confidence yeah, I appreciate that. And and maybe just to share two cents back with you, you know, and I as I look at my faith, it's kind of along the same lines. It's kind of a different side of the coin, but I was I felt like early on in my time in the LDS church, I was taught that, you know, Mormons overemphasize works and underemphasize grace. And and as I begin to dig into my faith and begin to look at the the different talks and sermons and things that have been given, 
I've, I've allowed room for grace to come in and, and begin to see that, and maybe just to correct a misconception sometimes that's out there is that Mormons don't believe in, in grace. And, and I, that's completely untrue, but often at the local level, we sometimes overemphasize this idea of works and, and just to stay, say that, you know, grace is just crucial to me. It is, it is my, uh, it's my, one of my pillars of my foundation, uh, in my faith in God is the fact that, that there's his grace ready to kind of lift me up and enable me to do things that I can't do on my own. And, and so that was just the thought I had as you were sharing, you know, the trials and adversity you've had and how in some ways that's, that's been a blessing because it's given you a chance to, to move forward and to grow from those things. And as you point out, you know, God can stop things, but, but yet he chooses not to. And, uh, and all that goes into that and, and maybe recognizing you, you talked a little bit about, you know, if God does this for me, then I'll follow him. And that seems like the proposition that Satan threw to, to God as he was talking about Job was this idea that you bless Job with everything. And if you just take it away from him, then, uh, then he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't praise you. And, uh, God's, you know, comment back to him was, you know, essentially, you know, into thy hands, I, I allow you to tempt him and to do those things. So hard times come and we each have challenges and trials. And so I appreciate you sharing that in some ways that's been certainly sad and hard and tough. And like you say, moments where you didn't feel like you could go on, but that it's also part of the, the blessings of your faith is to have those challenges. I, I want to finish up asking you about maybe just keeping in the back of your mind those who are struggling, those who have lost faith in God. What can we do to strengthen that? What, you know, if someone says to themselves, Hey, I've lost faith, but I want to believe. I want to, I want to lead with faith. What can somebody do, you know, on an individual level that, that would help them get going back the right direction? Well, that really depends on what it is that caused them to lose their faith. I mean, there's lots of reasons people depart from their, uh, the beliefs of their upbringing. If it's simply that they've gotten challenging information that they don't know how to deal with, uh, as there's tons of that out there now. I mean, with the new atheists and, and of course, liberal scholarship and so forth, uh, there's all kinds of people putting out their uh, arguments against our faith. And if we don't know the nature of the of the facts or if we don't know how to answer those things, obviously that can cause someone to lose faith. They can just reach the conclusion that, you know, believing what I was taught just doesn't make sense, so I'm not going to believe it anymore. Well, if that's the problem, then obviously someone ought to do more research because as far as I'm concerned, the more research you do, the more Christianity and the Bible, uh, the reliability of them seem to shine forth. And uh, if someone's reading only Bart Ehrman and, and people of his type, well, no wonder they're, they're going to lose their faith because, like you said, he takes the evidence and puts the most skeptical spin on it that, that he can. Uh, whereas other scholars, I think people should read more widely, other scholars who are more conservative, they revel in the evidence. They're not trying to hide the evidence. They they deal with the evidence very forthrightly, and uh, and yet they put a, a more reasonable, in my opinion, uh, interpretation on the facts, which, I mean, I, I don't think that they're trying to conceal anything. I think they're trying to just make sense of the facts, and I think when you do, your faith will be strengthened. But I think a lot of people have left the faith not because they've heard arguments against it, but because of some other reason, maybe an emotional reason. And I think this is more often true than not. Even even if they lose the faith because of intellectual things, often there's also an emotional component that's making them vulnerable to that. Right. And I think the emotions that cause people to lose faith sometimes are disappointment with God. They expected more from their faith. They expected that they'd feel something more. They expected that there that things would happen for them that didn't happen for them. That God would have, you know, given them a different set of circumstances and he didn't show up for them. And they're maybe a little bitter toward God about that. Uh disappointed and embittered about God. Now, I guess how could someone get over that? Well, I think you get over that by saying, you know, God is more important than I am and his purposes and agendas are more important than what my preferences are. And if God's doing something he's been working on for thousands of years and he's going in a certain direction, uh, I'm here for a few years only, and my tastes and my preferences and my pleasures and my comforts and and so forth uh, are relatively insignificant compared to his overall plan. I don't mind fitting into his plan, however painful that might be. Like Job said, you mentioned Job. Job said, though he slay me, I'll trust him. Well, in other words, Job was saying, God doesn't owe me anything. He's God. I owe him. And I think we've, I think our natural tendency is to feel like, you know, we deserve a little something, at least a little fairness 
a little bit of uh, deference uh, from people and from God. And when God doesn't defer to us like we think he should, sometimes we get embittered. And I think people have lost their faith over that because God just didn't seem to be doing what they thought God should do for them. Or he allowed trials in their lives they were they were not ready to handle. Or, or you know, like I said, God didn't show up. They've heard other people testify of a relationship with God, and they prayed, and they did all the stuff. They jumped through the hoops, and God never really showed up for them, and so they're mad at him. I would just say God is real, and once you put him at the center of all your concerns, not not the not as a means to an end, not seeing God as the one who will bring me love and peace and joy and salvation even. He will do those things, no doubt, but that's that's not the motivation. You put God at the center of your life for himself because he's he because he made us, he owns us, he deserves to be the focus of our of our love and our attention and because by doing so is the only way to make ourselves be in sync with reality because the whole world is made for God's purposes and God's glory. And once we begin to step into that role of being, I'm just here for his glory. I'm not here for my agendas. I'm here for his glory. Suddenly there's all basis for resentment or bitterness toward God. It doesn't have a foundation anymore. I'm, I think it's putting ourselves first instead of God is what makes people sometimes become disappointed with God. And I can understand being disappointed with God, but I, I think that it's, uh, if we let our lives and our faith be ruined by our disappointment, we're, we're just cheating ourselves and we're not really, <laughs> we're not doing any damage to God, really. We're just damaging ourselves. I think we need to just get into a right relation with God and, and knowing God, really knowing Him, as I said, other than by hearsay, is going to go a long way to making your faith invulnerable to attack if you really have a relationship with God. Jesus is risen from the dead. He's alive. And he makes himself present with us through his Holy Spirit. And if we are walking in the Spirit, we're in communion with him. And that communion can be just as real as our communion with any person we know and love. Amen to that. I appreciate that. I'm sitting down today with Steve Gregg. Uh, your website, again, is thenarrowpath.com. I also wanted to just touch on real quickly, you've got two books out that I see. One is called All You Want to Know About Hell, and the other one is Revelation, Four Views. Uh, where can people find those books, Steve? Well, um, just through the regular booksellers. I don't sell them. Uh, you can get it through Amazon or christianbook.com. Or, and frankly, you can get it at Barnes Noble. A lot of times they have them in the stores. Um, I, I would just point out this, that the, the Revelation 4 views is simply comparing side by side in a parallel commentary format for entirely different approaches to Revelation that are well established historically by different groups. And, and uh, basically, it doesn't doesn't champion any one view itself. My, my book doesn't even reveal what my view is. It just really wants to give people all the information to evaluate different views. And the book, All You Want to Know About Hell, I don't like that title, uh, and I would never want to give that title without the subtitle, because the subtitle tells you what it's really about. Uh, by the way, I didn't choose that title. The publisher chose it and I, over my protest. But the subtitle is Three Christian Views of God's Final Solution for the Problem of Sin. And it's, it basically is sort of like the book that I wrote about Revelation. It compares different views that Christians have held and the arguments for and against them. And there's three different views of hell. There's four different views of Revelation that have historically been held, and uh, neither neither of my books actually reveals uh, what my own leanings are necessarily, at least not overtly, maybe maybe subtly. Well, I appreciate that, and I think, again, just finishing off the way we began, it's this idea of giving people options and giving them different ways to see the information and letting them, in their own relationship with God, choose that path that best fits their, their way of thinking and their way of trying to incorporate God's grace into their life. and So I appreciate it. Steve, thank you so much and thank you for being on the program. Good. Well, you have a great day. He's the one who healed the leper and who brought the dead to life. He's the one who fed the hungry and who gave the blind their sight. He's the one who walked on water, then he brought them safe to shore. And whenever you may need him, he's the one you're looking for. So let him in, and he will take away your pain. When you feel his love, you'll never be the same. Come on to Christ.
by His grace be made holy again. He's calling your name. He's waiting for you with arms open wide. Come unto Yeah.